from a bar mitzvah at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to a temple procession in Taipei. The people of our world are passionate about their beliefs. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. Hello and welcome to Radio Taiwan International. I am Natalie. So, up this hour on Taiwan Today, I talked to a renowned expert on Taiwan, John Tasik, about how uh, China may have influenced the elections and how China is relating to President Tsai Ing-wen. Also, on a Live from Taipei, you hear from Taiwan's performance scene. But first, join us for Here in Taiwan. Welcome to Here in Taiwan. It's Friday, December 7th, and in the studio we have Shirley Lin. Hello. Jake Chen. Hello. And I am Natalie So. We'll be talking about our president who made another world ranking uh, recently for women, and we'll be talking about that. Also, um, a woman who gave up a really good job for a good reason. And um, some secrets about Taiwan's receipts and um, some new ideas for bilingual education in Taiwan. Those stories and more next. Well, let's talk about President Tsai Ing-wen. She made some new world ranking. Tell us about this. Yes, we're talking about Forbes. It just released its annual World's 100 Most Powerful Women list for 2018. And uh, our president, Tsai Ing-wen, is ranked 40th on the list, which actually was a drop of 25 spots from last That's not year. That's high, actually, 40. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking <laughs> but, about a president of a country. Yeah. yeah. She dropped 25 spots? Yeah, yeah. Wow. But, you which know, is she's not still in the top 100. <laughs> yeah, which is not entirely surprising given that her party lost major seats in the recent election, right? Yes, that is true. Um, it uh, The comments about the ranking for Tsai Ing-wen is that um, noting that she's Tom's first female leader, uh, the magazine touches on, uh, you know, Tom's relations with the U.S. and her resignation as head of the Democratic Progressive Party after the party's major defeat in local elections. Which is which just, just happened recently. Two weeks ago, yeah. Yes, but it also says, however, that Tsai, quote-unquote, faces no obvious challengers for 2020, which is the next presidential election, yeah, for Taiwan. Not oh. yet. Someone will come not out. Yet, probably. Yeah, there's still <laughs> two <laughs> years away. A few people away. will come out. No, the, not two years, only like 14 actually, months. Actually, 40, okay. Yeah, a bit yeah. more than one and a half years. It'll yeah. be less than one and a half years. Less than one and a half years. Yeah. Right. Wait until so. the campaign starts. Yeah. Well, um, German Chancellor Angela Merkel topped the list for the eighth year in a row. Mm, good for her. And the top ten most powerful women for this year are uh, Merkel and then Prime Minister Theresa May, mm. uh, IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde, General Motors CEO Mary Barra. General Motors CEO is a lady. Good, yeah. good for them. Fidelity CEO is also a lady, Abigail Johnson. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation co-chair, Melinda Gates. Uh, yeah. And oh, then YouTube well CEO, Susan Wozik. Uh, sorry, I can't say that name right. And um, Banco Santander, SA Chairman, Anna Bolton. Uh, Lockheed Lockheed, Lockheed Martin, right? Martin, CEO of Marilyn Houston. The, the, wow, mi- the military contractor? Cool. Wow. Mm, and IBM CEO, Jeannie Rometty. 
Well, a lot of business leaders are women now. Look, look at yeah, yes. IBM, uh, Lockheed Martin, YouTube, uh, IMF. These are literally the biggest organizations in the world. That's some of them. They are influential, right? I mean, yeah. well done, ladies. Touches socially, culturally, financially, um, even militarily. In, yeah, even in non-traditional <laughs> fields for women, they're they're breaking through. That's good, great. Good, good stuff. Mm. So um, there are other political leaders ahead of Tsai on the list, like mm. uh, Queen Elizabeth II, Ivanka uh, Trump. And then Bangladesh. She um, has the presidency here, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And New Zealand's um, Jacinda Ardern, Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam, mm-hmm. and Norway's Erna Solberg. But uh, the list also features quite a number of business leaders, as we've noticed. Um, there are others. Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg, uh, Oprah Winfrey, and then mm-hmm. Vogue um, editor Anna Wintour, um, American oh, singer famous. Beyonce Knowles, Beyonce. Hong Liyuan, the wife of Chinese chairman Xi Jinping. She was ahead of um, Tsai Ing-wen? No, not ahead. Oh, okay. She's in 65th place. Oh, okay. And then American singer Taylor Swift and also American professional tennis player Serena Williams. I, I was going to say, you know, I'm really glad that the top most influential women are all political and, and business leaders. You know, I'm glad there's no, not a bunch of entertainers. Just a model or and something, And here right? bu- yeah. comes a bunch of entertainers. So. <laughs> oh, uh, Someone just for her beauty or something, right? Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's a good trend, yeah. yeah. All right. Here for the women. Let's talk about a woman who made an interesting decision on what to give up and then do with her life. Right. We are talking about uh, Zhou Baoling. Uh, in her previous career, um, she was a high-level manager at uh, Xinzhou in a high-tech company. Xinzhou is north of uh, Taipei City and is a sort of a hub for Taiwan's high-tech industry. And um, before she changed career nine years ago, she had a really high-paying job. But she said uh, she's getting very stressed and she's not spending much quality time with her family. And she decided to change career and find a more uh, promising job. Uh, apparently, a, a lack of sort of compensation, not financially, but a lack of fulfillment was the reason that she wanted to change career too. So she left uh, her old job and she uh, devoted herself in public welfare. Uh, she set up uh, a classroom called Greenlight Seed Classroom. Uh, it is a um, after-school program that she set up herself with the fund all raised by her and her former colleagues to uh, help children that come from middle to low-income families. And so far, she's helped over 170 uh, children from different families. What do they do? They, she gives them um, academic counsel? or She gives them academic counsel, and she also... Um, in, she and her staff uh, members uh, host different programs because she said um, not long after she began uh, getting a job in the public welfare sector, she said a glaring issue that really stood out right in front of her was that children who had no places to go after school, and, and many of them come from middle to low-income families for obvious reasons, their parents have to work overtime, uh, tend to, to get themselves into trouble really easily. And mm. she said as a mother and as a professional in this new realm, I like to do something about it. So... Um, good for her. It's it's not an easy uh, transition for sure. She has to raise roughly nine million new Taiwan dollars. That's three hundred thousand U.S. dollars per year, all on her own and with the help of her wow. friends and staff, of course. That's a big wow. endeavor. Yeah, because you know the, the, they can't pay for it. It's free. This these classes are free. Or? So far, it remains free, and and they have very limited oh, funding wow. from the government, so they have to do this on their own. So good, good wow, for them. That's a great project that she's doing. Yeah. So here's a, a photo of her. Nice. That's wonderful. Jolly She's doing. Yeah. yeah, I'm surprised that she's been doing this for nine years and the government hasn't given any kind hasn't of hasn't really picked out the tab. They should give subsidies or something. Yeah, yeah they should. Yeah, and, it's it's. Um, 
and and you're surprised for a good reason. A lot of people don't uh, last very long, unfortunately, in this career. Um, so it's uh, good to see her it's, her pushing it's all through. Passion and giving, right? Yeah. You really don't. I mean, monetarily, you're not getting anything. You're not just, not not much. Just getting the reward of feeling what you're doing is meaningful, right? Worth right. it. So great job. topic of education yeah one of the top news again was uh, how we're going to make Taiwan bilingual and uh, they want to do it by 2030 and they're planning to um, have a really uh, concrete plan within three months one of the ideas they're throwing out there I think this is such a great idea because one of the things that I, I had to really adjust to being here because my husband's Taiwanese is that my kids you know English wasn't so great growing up right it really mm -hmm. bothered me you know like you're saying that wrong you're writing that wrong you know? <laughs> it's, it's all over the place okay. right and then i don't want to be their english teacher as well as their mom and you know it just it's so much so anyways um so um what they're planning to do and they want to have a new approach to english education because in the past it's always been trying to uh, pass a test right or get mm -hmm. a certificate that kind of thing or, or memorizing vocabulary so what they want to do is to hold some classes, like, you know, in elementary school, entirely in English, mm -hmm. so that people get used to talking in English and listening and thinking in English. What do you guys think of this idea? I think that's a great idea, but, um, you know, to get it started, it, it can be hard. Well, here's the thing. There are a lot of um, English teachers, so to speak, in Taiwan who have been at this for like 30, 40 years. I agree. And they've been in the same rut, you know, That's like true. pronouncing words that are not quite right. They and, have their own accent. And, it, it, and it's the same accent. Where did they mm, get their yeah. accent from? I guess from I don't the know. system here. Yeah. So. I think they need to, yeah. And, and I mean, there were times when they wanted to pull in a lot more native English speakers. And mm -hmm. then there was some kind of protest from the Taiwan English speakers because they, they feel threatened, right? Oh, Yeah, and they're currently underpaid compared to their foreign counterparts as it is. But their English yeah, is not too. as good as their foreign counterparts, too. I mean, Right. There should be a system of um, kind of evaluating these Taiwanese English teachers, so to speak. Yeah. Or, you know, and that people should be evaluated by the level of their English, too. Right. Not like if they look white or if they look... Because in the cram schools, if you have a white face, then you, you, you automatically assume oh, yeah, you have good English. Foreign, foreign but teachers, people yeah. like us, the three of us, actually, we're not white, but our English is fine, right? Right. So... Um, there needs to be a whole new way of thinking about English. Yeah, yeah I'm I'm uh, really cautious about the goal. I mean, I do really hope this works out because, you know, the opportunities that, that you can bring for your talents is immense, you know, by making them all bilingual. But when you look at Singapore, who's been working on this for three decades and yeah. arguably a much more advanced country than, than Taiwan is, uh, they still have, like, they have moderate success. Well, I think they're fluent, yeah. right? I mean, their English is different, but... Um, like, in, in different, but when you look at most Singaporeans speaking, I, I, don't, I don't want to speak out of terms here, but as far as I've heard, like, they... they like, I think on the average, they're better than Taiwanese. Yes. Like, when you talk about students and, you know, on different levels, but they're not fluent by the time they hit university, as far as I can tell. Mm. Um, they have their accent. They have, they have a and, really strong accent. And their grammar, as far but as... But they're better than Taiwan. But they're, I think they're fluent in terms of communication. Yes. Yeah, yes. they're capable. Yeah. And they think that's good enough for them. Yeah. They're not striving to have 
a perfect uh, American or even a British accent. No. I don't think. But, but I think their government has been pouring a lot of money to 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 bring up their their education, their English education, up to speed. So, mm. um, how I, did you learn your English so well, Jake? It's um, your second language, right? Just, I mean, technically, I started at three. So it's always like my second mother tongue. Um, you started at three in China. Yeah, in China. Oh, I didn't oh, know okay. that. I still probably at two actually. I still have like those audio tapes of my dad teaching me. Like oh. your dad teaching you. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Like I learned to say trucks and cars when I was two, but <laughs> I never really started to learn until like intensely until I was fifteen. So when I, you went to Canada. when you were in Canada. Yeah, when I was in Canada. Yeah. Right. So I guess it's a different situation, right? Yeah. Right. You're immersed. Yeah. So, anyways, we'll see how things go. We'll let you know if people are speaking better English here in Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> two months we have the chance to look at our receipts to see if they uh, have any winning we, numbers yeah winning number yeah and uh, so we have this thing where we collect receipts here in Taiwan it's a tradition and it's the way to keep uh, businesses honest as well and right and um, so tell us about these secrets you want to tell us about these receipts yeah this story actually says that there are three um, secrets about these receipts that most people don't know and probably won't know for the rest of their life but I, I think for one though do you guys know when they announce the winning numbers is it 26 every, every two months well you see yeah that's not a secret right I mean I think that is correct actually the, the numbers they say the 25th I, but I, then I, something I, like that I didn't yeah. know Could, I don't know the exact yeah and then it gets published right uh, okay. on um, you know it goes public on the 26th so I don't think that's a secret I mean I knew about that but it's now um, you know since 1988 it's every two months that they right, um, announce the winners the winning numbers rather well the other thing is that Again, I don't think this is a secret. But anyway, um, you know how they used to have um, the receipts, the long strip of papers, uh -huh. and those are recyclable. But nowadays, you know, they have to print it out on these some um, heat sensitive, oh, yeah, I know. right? Yeah. And so they're not recyclable. And so, but there is a thing, and I just learned it from my daughter the other day. There's the cloud. Um, you can keep your receipt numbers in the cloud. That's true. You can and have then they actually, receipts. yeah. And that means that they can and, and actually... they'll check it for you. They'll check That's, it for you. That happened to me. I do it you at the grocery that? store. Oh, and, good. and I won before, too. Oh, oh good. It's easier that way. I know, isn't it? It's a lot easier. But the last one, I'm sure nobody knows. Actually, they found ways so that people won't fake these receipts. And um, they're the first line, the first character, the first line of Chinese characters, there was always missing a stroke in one of the characters. And they changed those strokes, the missing strokes, every month. Oh. <laughs> And I was going to counterfeit one. I mean, gosh. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, Shirley, for those secrets. And uh, thanks for joining us on Here in Taiwan. Stay tuned for Taiwan Today for an interesting talk with John Tassik. For Here in Taiwan, I'm Natalie So. I'm Shirley Lin. And I'm Jake Chen. See ya. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. I'm very honored to have with me a renowned expert on Taiwan, the director of the Future Asia Project at the International Assessment and Strategy Center in Washington. He's been invited here by the Taiwan think tank, Mr. John Tassik. Uh, John, it's great to have you here. 
Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's really a privilege to be here. Yeah, and uh, you know, we just finished midterm elections, very yes, uh, yeah. major elections, and the DPP had a major defeat. In your opinion, what does this um, reflect about public sentiment? Well, I think Taiwan, the Taiwan voter, was looking primarily at domestic issues. It seems to me that this was not a, a thing that the American government or the American policymakers are going to take too too personally. I don't know exactly what the dynamics were for the domestic policy, whether it was the the veterans who were complaining about their pensions or or shopkeepers who were complaining about the way that the Tsai administration was handling urban development. But um, I think as far as the smaller issues were concerned, and it, it, it reflected two things. One is that there's still a considerable level of traditional outlook toward morality and uh, family life. Uh, There's still a considerable traditional outlook toward Taiwan's energy production, and there's still a traditional outlook toward protection of Taiwan's agricultural and farming sectors. And a lot of this sort of resonated in itself to generate, I think, a message to the, the new government on domestic issues. I think there was also a lot of Chinese involvement in, I don't want to say manufacturing fake news. A lot of it was fake news. There's no question. But the Chinese are very active in using social organizations, social internet networks and communication networks, and exploiting just minor wedge issues in uh, Taiwan society to uh, generate a big echo chamber of dissent. Another phenomenon that seemed to be prevalent was that there seemed to be a lot of either fake news or exaggerated news about the way the Thai government was dealing with broader issues of Taiwan's identity, to the point that uh, a lot of people, a lot of the electorate that you would expect would come out and support the, the Green camp basically just stayed at home and sat on its hands. And I heard a a couple of people comment the other day in a humorous way that the day after the election, several hundred thousand DPP voters got up in in the morning and read the newspapers and were horribly, you know, alarmed and and angered because they didn't go out and vote. Oh, really? (laughs) It's too late now. Well, that was it. So I, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to put this kind of uh, an election in, in that in a broader context beyond Taiwan without factoring all these things in. So, you know, China has been coming down hard on President Tsai. I mean, they're using many strategies. For example, they took a lot of diplomatic allies. Uh, there's increased military activity. There's pressure on international businesses to list Taiwan as a part of China. So do you think that this kind of um, tension in cross-strait relations is uh, working, you know, for China's benefit, that people are now dissatisfied with how it might affect Taiwan economically or internationally? And do you think China is getting their way? Do you, do you think their strategies are working? Well, I, well, it remains to be seen. I think as far as um, President Tsai Ing-wen is concerned, she's doing exactly what she promised she would do which is to hold a steady course with China. And she, what she promised her American and her Japanese and her Asian and her European partners, which is she was going to be, a, she's going to hold a moderate course. 
I think she's uh, fulfilled that. Uh, I think everybody, all global leaders in the, specifically in the in the community of democracies, is very not only happy with President Tsai Ing-wen, but but positively impressed with her abilities. I think that uh, China is pushing her in a direction that neither she nor the international community of democracies wants her to go in, which is to basically sell out to, to China and basically say Taiwan is going to be part of the Chinese camp. We see that the diplomatic shouduan, what do you call it, the, the diplomatic schemes, not, uh, when China tried to pull away Taiwan's diplomatic support, especially in Central America, it had a very strong backlash, not here, but in Washington. Right. It was and the first time they had an act that actually it, passed I had, in Congress. I had never... I, it's the first time that the President of the United States has complained about it. It's the first time that the Secretary of State of the United States had recalled his ambassadors from the countries that broke ties with Taiwan to discuss you know, where we go in the future with these countries that simply do not listen to our our concerns. So why why is the U.S. so concerned this uh-huh, time? Is exactly. it because it's in their backyard, or is there a greater well, reason? There are two or three reasons. But I think the one reason, of course, is China is going into America's backyard and trying to buy influence in America's strategic territory, if you will, uh, sphere of influence, if you will. But the second reason is that I think for the first time, Washington is afraid that if China begins to kick out all of the diplomatic legs from Taiwan's diplomatic table, at the very end, there's no alternative for Taiwan but to declare that they are not part of China. Because all of these Ah. countries, all of these countries recognize the Taipei government as the sole legal government of China. So you think that if we lost all of our allies, that would mean that a, a likelihood of war would be even more? Well, I think that's what... Or that, that's what the U.S. is afraid of. This is of. what the U.S. is afraid of. They're afraid that, that when you start messing with the status quo to that level, that uh, the instabilities that, that bubble up mm-hmm. uh, and the pressures that are put on the Zhonghua Mingua government in, in Taiwan become overwhelming. There's a... I mean, this is going to get abstruse, but there are four criteria for statehood in international law. And these are criteria that the United States recognizes. Uh, most countries of the world adopt them. And they, one is an independent country has to have a defined territory, a defined population, a government that administers that population with sovereign authority, uh, and the last thing is that it has the capacity to engage in foreign relations. Oh. Now, Taiwan fulfills all four of those criteria. The State Department in 1986 came up with a fifth criterion, which is a country has to declare that it's a country. So not only does it have to have a defined territory, population, a government, and a capacity to deal in foreign relations, but it also has to say we are a government. And insofar as Taiwan has not declared that they are the government of Taiwan, but rather the government of this much bigger entity of China, the United States withholds its judgment on Taiwan's international status as an independent state. So the United States is looking at 
Once you start removing all of these uh, countries that recognize Taiwan as the government of all China, toward the end of that road, Taiwan has no choice but to say, well, we're the government of Taiwan. We had constitutional revisions in the 1990s. We've had uh, constitutional and electoral revisions uh, in the 2000s. We've had uh, a, a, an entirely new structure of Zheng Dangxing, you know, what, what you call a um, uh, structure of legitimacy. And since nobody else recognizes the, as the whole, the government of all China, we hereby declare that we're the government of Taiwan instead. So does, um, is the U.S., you know, they, they pass this Taipei Act for that reason, mm-hmm. right? Is that working? Is it, is it working on the allies that still recognize Taiwan? Are they more wary now Actually, of I, moving to China? I, th- I think, oddly enough, I think they are. I, and I, I, I'm not at liberty to discuss which countries we're talking about, but um, I think th- there's several key countries still in Latin America and the Caribbean that uh, we're counting on. But I think, you know, without giving away too much, I think what we're most concerned about is Taiwan's diplomatic representation in the Western Pacific, in the Pacific Islands, in uh, Tuvalu, in Palau, in the Marshall Islands. And the Pacific Island countries are moving toward China. And that this, at bottom, is a geopolitical, I don't want to say threat, but it's a geopolitical challenge to to not just the U.S., but to Japan and Australia and New Zealand. I think finally Australia and New Zealand are coming to, the, to realize that this is a problem in their own backyard. Mm. So the U.S. is actually coming to Taiwan's hand, you know, yeah. in, diplomatically. They're, they're making a difference. What about militarily? Um, you know, China is growing in its military, um, you know, strength, and their increased military activity around Taiwan. How much would the U.S. support um, Taiwan if China attacked? Under what conditions would the U.S. be there for Taiwan? I I mean, I don't speak for the government, of course, Mm. or I have a feeling that the the U.S. is fully committed to Taiwan and just about whatever happens. I mean, I can't imagine a scenario where Taiwan really provokes China into an attack. The only scenario, only scenario I can imagine is that China creates a... A pretext, uh. a pretext for attacking because they feel confident. Either they feel confident that Taiwan will collapse fairly quickly or they feel confident that the United States is not going to get involved or Japan or anybody else or both. And my feeling is that if you, this is, like I say, this is my gut feeling now, that throughout the last 70 years of U.S. foreign policy, Whenever we've been faced with a situation like this, where a country under our, the United States' personal security relationship is attacked, even if we don't feel like we should be protecting those countries, we always get involved. We saw this in Korea in 1950, where the United States had no intention of defending Korea, and yet when the North Koreans attacked South Korea, the United States was in there with both feet very quickly. And not only that, in 1950, when the North Koreans attacked South Korea, the United States had no intention of defending Taiwan. And all of a sudden, literally within two days, President Truman ordered the Pacific Fleet, the Seventh Fleet, into the Taiwan Strait to do two things. One is, well, primarily to defend Taiwan against China. We've seen it several times after that, but most, you know, most recently in... Uh, 
1990 when Iraq invaded Kuwait, there was a big debate in the United States about whether the United States really belonged to them. This was not our battle. This was Iraq and Kuwait fighting, and why did we have to get involved? But literally, this, the day after the, not even the day after, the day of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, the president of the United States said, this will not stand, and built up a coalition to, to push uh, Iraq out. I think we've seen that kind of determination where the United States had no intention of getting involved in a war, but when it was presented to us, had no, had no qualms but to get involved. Mm. And I think Taiwan is going to be in that situation. I, the problem, I think now, okay, I was going to go on into ancient history, but we can't, we don't have, we don't have <laughs> Okay, we'll talk more in our next episode. Um, I've been here with uh, John Tasik. He's the director of the Future Asia Project at the International Assessment and Strategy Center in Washington, D.C. He's a renowned expert on Taiwan and China. John, it's been great talking with you, and we'll be speaking more with John um, in our next episode of Taiwan Today. Thank you for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm, what do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. Welcome to Live from Taipei. I'm Charlie Starr. We're not doing uh, a selection from the uh, Story Slam this week. Instead, I'm in the studio with Mr. Stuart Glenn, Canadian actor, producer, bon vivant. <laughs> Stuart, how are you? Hi, Charlie. Thanks for having me. It's Great. Nice, nice place you have here. Tell us about this uh, project that you've got coming up and, and uh, talk to me as if I knew nothing about it, which in a sense... I don't. <laughs> yes. The mystery project. It all stemmed from uh, Brooke Hall, of course, uh, our acting teacher and director, both you and I. He's left town. Yes. Now, Brooke was for many years kind of like the father of English language theatre here in Taipei. He was, if, if there was the a show that was going on, yeah, he, the, was, he was the one who was behind it. Absolutely. I think at his peak, he was producing five full-length plays a year. And it's a huge hole 
that our artistic community is going to Yes, suffer. indeed. He's moved on to Vienna to take up a position there. And we're all very envious of him, of course. Oh, yeah. Teaching and directing theatre in Vienna. And before he left, he knew that he was going to be coming back to Taipei for like just a short time between Christmas and New Year. So he posted something on Facebook. Yeah. What was it? Yeah, that's right. He, uh, he mentioned a play by an Iranian playwright named Nassim Soleimanpour called White Rabbit, Red Rabbit. And the convention of the play immediately leapt to a lot of people's imaginations in that the actor that will play in this one-man show can never have seen or read the play prior to performance. Let that just and sink in for a second. <laughs> how, do they, how do you even do that? You will be called to the stage by the keeper of the words in our production. He is uh, Dr. Jerome Keating. And he will then give you some instructions. I'm not sure because I'm both of us, Charlie, are acting in this. <laughs> We're both taking the leap into the great unknown here. But Jerome will call us up to the stage, introduce us in some fashion, and then give us an envelope a sealed envelope which contains the script that you and I will both read at different times. So you're going to get eight different interpretations of the very same script and each actor has no idea what's going to happen once they step onto the very unique stage that we're setting up for them. The odd thing is here, even though the way we're structuring the, uh, the audience participation of this show, I want to send a, a warning out to all actors and want-to-be actors uh, about this play, don't come see the show. <laughs> don't come see it because any, if you've seen it, you can never you, perform yeah, it. Yeah, you can never perform it. Uh, and if I'm going after you, then I will never get to see your performance. That's right. I'll, I'll see yours, but you won't be able to see mine. Oh, We're all being fair. held in a metaphorical kimchi jar, hermetically sealed on the roof of the Red Room. <laughs> Let's go back a bit to yeah. uh, how this came about. So when Brooke left, he basically posted a message on Facebook uh, sort of saying, you know, this is something I would love to do. Yeah. And a few of us chimed up. So I oh, yeah, us too, Brooke. Let's do it together. And, uh, and at that point, Brooke kind of pulled back and uh, said, oh, I'm thinking this is something I just want to kind of keep for myself. And we said, fine, that's, you know, you're right. You're the godfather of theater here. So, <laughs> But you weren't you taking it. that for, uh, for a no, weren't you? You were very much the, uh, you know, the main mover here. You were, the, you were the person who first was saying, oh, I'd love to do that. And, yeah. hey, Charlie, how you'd love yeah, to do that as yeah. well. And oh, then, yeah. Did I call you out? Did <laughs> I tag uh, you? Yeah. And, uh, well, I just did a little research, and I, I investigated how much the rights were, because Brooke was uh, expressing concern over the cost of the rights and that he might not be able to do it because of that. So I inquired on my own and uh, they came back with a price that I was just like and this is with Aurora Nova who are co-producers of the of the, sh the show we're doing uh, in Berlin Aurora Nova Berlin and they came back with a price that was undoable it just made it impossible and so having heard no from them I had nothing to lose and I wrote back and threw myself at their mercy and offered them <laughs> considerably less <laughs> and uh and they came back with uh, actually having their original ask and uh, cutting out the 10% of the door that they had originally had asked for as well. I then discussed it with my business partner and we felt that this was something we could invest in as uh, one of the, our unique ways of bringing English-only environments to Taiwan. As an actor, hmm. how do you approach something like this? Uh, reliance on craft, reliance on training. Uh, stay, staying on voice, 
You know, we, we're making it triple hard. It's already a leap into the unknown, but we're making it, we're staging it in the round. We want the audience to be the set. In other words, the audience are going to be on all sides of the area where the actor is performing. Yeah, and not just at right angles. We want everybody crammed into every nook and cranny they can, making the actor feel trapped on the stage. Not so much theater in the round as theater in the surround. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, we're here talking about this because this is a production that's coming up soon. It's happening here in Taipei, and we want people to come see it. But it's kind of weird because we can't really say anything about it so what could we say Mm. that would make people think okay i want to come and see this this is a new convention you come to see empress do the opening show at two o'clock on saturday afternoon empress has not rehearsed you we haven't rehearsed at all we haven't been able to work out the laugh lines put in the pitfalls take you on that journey that we very carefully construct Mm. When you see John in the second show, you, you, as the audience member, are now rehearsed. You know what John's going to have to face. You know subsequently what I'm going to have to face and what Brooke's going to have to face after me. So you want to stay and see how each actor handles this. And, and the more you're familiar with the script, it, it's going to be very interesting dynamic. I think it actually flips the dynamic between actor and audience relationship. It's breaking new theatrical ground and it's something that is so traditional and filled with such rules and, and decorum and what have you. This is really outside the box. So we're trying to do outside the box marketing. In fact, we don't want to charge people. We, the audience is the set. So come down and see as many shows as you can. And then we're going to have a, a magician's hat. The rabbit is in the hat and you feed the rabbit a couple of hundred NT per show or whatever you feel is it, it was worth from the performer. What is there that we can say about the piece itself? The piece itself. You've been what trying do to we get know? to this, yeah. We, we can't know much, but uh, we know he was an Iranian. He is an Iranian pl- playwright. Uh, he was held in country without a passport, unable to travel. So he wrote this play. He's traveling vicariously through this play. In fact, there will be a seat left empty for Nassim for every one of our shows. He is very involved in our production in that you can send him a question. You can ask him directly uh, and talk to him about your impressions of the play. So it says, it says in the liner notes that it's not overtly political. It's more metaphorical. Uh, but the fact is that he is a dissident. And, and so it's kind of like asking the press to be careful to be judicious in what they say about Mm. it because we don't want him to get in any deeper trouble so well whatever else we could say and we can't say very much we do know it's going to be a very unique theatrical experience Mm. and we'd love people to come out and and see it tell us when it's when it's happening and where yeah it'll be at the red room on saturday december 29th beginning at 2 p.m with empress 3 30 with john brownlee five o'clock yours truly Stu glenn and our headliner at 6.30, Mr. Brooke Hall. Then we start again on Sunday, and Roma Meta will be kicking us off. Uh, we're still negotiating for the next spot. We have, I'm looking at a few very interesting people to take this swing spot. And then, Charlie, you'll be going at 5 p.m., and we're closing off the festival at 6.30 with Brandon Thompson. 
And we're still looking for a venue to host uh, an after party. Maybe it'll be at the Red Room where you can everybody can come and meet the actors. That Now we've all done it. Now we're all on the same page. We're all red we're, rabbits. We're all red rabbits. Uh, in, well, in well red in rabbits. Very good. Well, we'll, we'll post a link to, uh, to, the, uh, to the event page yeah, uh, when we post this on, online. Um, and we yeah, are looking forward to it just a couple of weeks away now. Yeah. Steal yourself. <laughs> it's going to be a bumpy night. Yeah. Well, Steve, thanks so much for being here. Oh, Charlie, today. thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. White Rabbit, Red Rabbit is a production of Stuart's production company, Infinity Key. The website is infinitykey.rocks, R-O-C-K-S. And for more details about this performance, check the internet posting of this edition of Live from Taipei at english.rti.org.tw. This is Radio Taiwan International. Newsmakers, a look at Taiwan's movers and shakers. President Tsai Ing-wen has stepped down as chair of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, to take responsibility for the party's heavy defeats in local elections last month. The midterm elections were seen as a referendum on President Tsai and her DPP administration because it was the first major race since she took office in May 2016. Of the 22 cities and counties nationwide, the DPP held power in 13, but that number dropped to six as the opposition KMT declared victory in 15 cities and counties. At a press conference on November 24, Tsai said she would take full responsibility for the setback. She also said the party had let its supporters down. A few days later, Tsai promised the DPP political heavyweights that she will seriously do some soul-searching. She also asked DPP members to offer her their advice loudly and directly. When Tsai was elected president in May 2016, she received resounding cheers from supporters. So why did so many voters turn their back on her? Some political analysts blame her leadership style, which they said is dogmatic to the point that few would tell her the truth, not even the premier. Critics said that over the past two years, Tsai has governed the country based on her own political doctrines. She has also turned a blind eye to a public outcry over issues ranging from pension reforms, labor rights to gay marriage and nuclear power, just to name a few. Tsai's appointment of government officials is another problem. Her preferences are scholars, bureaucrats, and hipsters. Critics said she does not trust people she has trouble controlling because there is no sense of security. Others said the DPP's humiliating defeat partly resulted from Tsai being out of touch with the public. The image the president has projected over the past two years is aloof, cold, and unreachable. Tsai Ing-wen received a master's degree in economics from Cornell University in the U.S. and a doctorate from the London School of Economics. After graduation, she spent some time as a law professor at Suzhou University and Zhengzhou University in Taiwan. Prior to becoming president in 2016, Tsai served as vice premier and was later elected chair of the DPP. The DPP is set to elect a new chair in early January.
Thank you for listening to our programs here today at Radio Taiwan International. I'm Natalie So, back here with Shirley Lin and Jake Chen, and we're going to leave you with one more thing. Well, we have an inspiring story about a student who just won a gold in a global contest. Tell us more about him. Right, we're talking about uh, this young fella Chen Minheng, um, currently uh, studying uh, in in Taiwan at the Taiwan Normal University in the uh, automotive division. He currently also works as a, a automotive technician. Now he won a, a pretty big award uh, at the forty fourth World Skills Competition. Uh, it was held in Abu Dhabi. Uh, this is a competition that that focuses on what we call hands on manual skills. Uh, so a lot of you know crafting and making things. And and the award, the category that he won, a in which he won a gold medal, was the much coveted uh, automotive skill category. Wow. Um, uh, no, no Taiwanese has won in the last twenty years. I wonder what they made him wow. do. Yeah, I, I think is probably a lot of fixing, a lot fixing of sort of the cars or on the fly skills for an cool. uh, automotive technician. Wow. And uh, yeah, what a journey for this for a young guy too. For a young guy, he's a, here's a photo of him. I mean, he's it's like it's not like he has that much experience behind him, right? He's, yeah, he's only mm-hmm. a student. Right. Um, he was actually quite a trouble student uh, in his uh, junior high years. Uh, mm. He said uh, he uh, had no much interest, not much interest to to get into uh, you know studying with books, and he couldn't sort of hold himself down you know to a chair for too long. Oh, something does he have ADHD or something? Something Probably. I could relate. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a lot of good boys you are like relate. that. <laughs> okay, right. I, yeah, I it's common boys. boys. Yeah, yeah. Mean, they struggle. They yeah. have struggled. Yeah, my son too. Focusing. Yeah. You, you could literally sit him down on a desk with no distraction and they can't get into it. I've, I've gone through that phase. It's actually mm-hmm. pretty painful when you sort of force yourself. And he said, so he, he unfortunately dropped out of school, but uh, he took over or he joined his family business of fixing cars. That's oh, where wow. he found a talent. He's really good with his hands, sort of. We call it the motory function is very uh, well developed, uh, even mm-hmm. as a young boy. I think at the time he was 14. And he worked on cars 12 hours a day, six days a week. And he eventually wow. got into the, the automotive uh, program in the National um, the Normal University. Uh, and so he's studying and working at the same time. Um, I didn't know they had a program like that there. Yeah, I think it's more of the the continuing educa- the continuing oh, education program okay, for sense. sort of it's sort of the non academic uh, uh, regular university branch. Program. Yeah, mm-hmm. of of the the school. So um, yeah, and he said that he he couldn't get enough of it. You know, learning and and studying. This is uh, sort of like it's calling. He didn't feel time's going by when he oh, do this. That's great. So so good for him. I think the the point I'm I'm getting from this. I was a, a high school teacher for very briefly for one and a half years, and and a lot of teachers came and talked to me about it because the Chinese education system where I talk focuses a lot on academic performance and that is important Yeah, but I think it's important to spot uh, uh, young um, students and most of them are boys who are good with their motor functions good at moving around and work with their hand especially at a certain age and to not force them into books that much you know right I mean unfortunately the system doesn't give a lot of room for that. But right. I think there are I think uh, technical schools in, 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 yeah. in high school, right? Mm. Yeah. So people want to do a particular field. A trade. Just, yeah, they can just learn early. They don't know they don't want to get a university degree or something. Right. And, and I hope parents can be more supportive uh, for true. kids like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard because there's so much pressure to do well in tests and grades and people think that's the only way right. to have a career. But it's not, right? Absolutely. I agree. Someone I interviewed recently, she was saying how she asked um, some of the kids. I think she was like, um, oh, she was like, um, you know, uh, teaching kids how to do debates. 
And um, she actually went around and asking the kids, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they would always start by saying, oh, my parents want me to blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. Same here. I've heard that yeah. a thousand it's times. It's so, so sad. Yeah. So if you're born, in, you know, from very traditional conservative Taiwanese parents, parents want me to be a doctor, a lawyer, <laughs> or a lawyer, accountant, something with a decent salary. Yeah. <sighs> so, oh, that's cool that he found his calling and he, he's so good at it. And, yeah, man, and that's that's amazing—a gold, gold medal world in a competition. world competition. Yeah. Think so, about how much that built him. I should take my car to him. Now. Oh yeah. Can I get his address? <laughs> <laughs> get him to fix my car. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for that story, Jake. And uh, thank you for joining us today on Radio Taiwan International. We hope that you enjoyed our programs, and we do hope that you will join us again. For RTA, I'm Nellie So. We hope to see you next time. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kilohertz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kilohertz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.